Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated. Good afternoon. Good afternoon. Welcome to the City Club of Cleveland. My name is Roland Anglin. I'm the Dean of the Maxine Goodman Levin College of Urban Affairs at Cleveland State and a proud member of the City Club. It is my distinct pleasure to introduce today's speaker, Dr. Malo A. Hudson. Dr. Hudson is Associate Professor of Urban Planning and Founder and Director of the Urban Community and Health Equity Lab at the Graduate School of Architecture, Planning, and Preservation at Columbia University. You are in for a treat. Today's lecture is the keynote address for the American Planning Association's Cleveland's We Plan CLE Initiative an annual event series open to all designed to foster discussion and innovation. The plan of We Plan CLE 2018 is equity, a concept founded in fairness, inclusivity, and equal opportunity. But what does that really mean for our communities? Well, today's forum is occurring in the middle of City Club, the City Club's second annual for the Love of Cleveland series. This year, they're discussing placemaking, the cities we use, the impact they have on our lives, and the people who work to build them. Social equity is often at the heart of these conversations, and Dr. Hudson's perspective and expertise on the intersection of social justice and urban planning couldn't be more timely or relevant. According to a United Nations report, more than half of the world's population resides in cities. And if current trends continue, that number will likely increase to 66% by 2050. Imagine that. For many urban areas, this growth will strain existing infrastructure, housing, trans transportation, and energy resources potentially resulting in wider inequality between the rich and the poor. While most of the city, the world's megacities are and will likely continue to be outside of the United States, this rapid urbanization still affects us all. Despite growth, many cities, including Cleveland, are facing increasing economic equality, aging infrastructure and housing stock, and environmental degradation, including poor air quality, water shortages, and exposure to toxins affecting the quality of life for all our residents. As cities grow, continue to grow and adapt, the question becomes, how can urban planners, policymakers, and practitioners alike 
work to achieve social and environmental equity through sound city planning. It is in this context that our speaker joins us today. Dr. Hudson is a widely recognized scholar, teacher, and practitioner whose research at the intersection of urban planning and health equities is important and relevant in the planning of today's cities across the United States and around the world. Prior to joining the faculty at Columbia University earlier this year, Dr. Hudson was an associate professor and the Chancellor's Professor of City and Regional Planning at the University of California at Berkeley, and Associate Director of the Institute of Urban and Regional Development within the College of Environmental Design. In addition, Dr. Hudson had more than 15 years of experience working on, working on numerous academic and community-centered projects, both nationally and internationally in cities such as Boston, Chicago, Los Angeles, New York City, New Orleans, Oakland, San Francisco, Santiago, Chile, and Toronto, Canada. He was also invited to be a guest at the White House as an expert in the area of community development, environmental justice, urban health, to participate in the first ever environmental justice forum. Dr. Hudson earned both his Bachelor of Arts in Sociology and Master of City Planning degrees from the University of California at Berkeley and his doctorate in Urban and Regional Planning from the School of Architecture and Planning at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Ladies and gentlemen, members and friends of the City Club of Cleveland, please join me in welcoming today's speaker, Dr. Malo A. Hudson. Thank you. Wow, what a wonderful introduction. I'm going to go home, and my head's going to be so, much, so big, my wife won't know who I am. No. Um, good afternoon. I, 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 oh, thank you. I'm delighted to be here today. Uh, but I also want to spend a, uh, extend a special thank you to the City Club of Cleveland, the APA, uh, the Association of Planning, uh, or the American Planning Association of Ohio chapter, and the Northeast Ohio community for inviting me to Cleveland. It, let's give the City Club and the o APA Ohio chapter and all the people who showed up today a big round of applause for this wonderful event. Today, we are discussing social equity, 50 years after the assassinations of Dr. Martin Luther King and Robert Kennedy. It has also been 50 years since the Fair Housing Act was passed into law. We have come a long way, but still have quite a long way to go. Given the long and impressive history of the City Club of Cleveland, this is the ideal place to be having this discussion today. As you gathered from my introduction, my work is at the intersection of urban planning and health equity. Whenever I give these types of public talks, I find that it's helpful to define health equity. According to the Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, health equity means that everyone has a fair and just opportunity to be healthier. This requires removing obstacles to health such as poverty, discrimination, and their consequences, including power powerlessness, lack of access to good jobs with fair pay, quality education and housing, safe environments, and health care. Basically, my work explores how, how where you live, how your zip code, may impact your health. 
For example, I'm interested in understanding how one's access to good quality schools, affordable housing, efficient modes of transportation, and economic opportunity influence one's health. I also believe in combining theory and practice to bring about social change. As a professor at Columbia University, I founded and direct the Urban Community and Health Equity Lab. The mission of the lab is to conduct interdisciplinary research to transform institutions, organizations, and practices that cause health inequities, both domestically and internationally. Specifically, the research at the lab uses a social justice framework and is at the intersection of architecture, law, public health, public policy, and urban planning. My interest in urban planning and health equity began when I was young. My mother had me at 17 years of age. We moved all over Southern California as my mother struggled to find better economic opportunities, quality affordable housing, good performing schools, all in a safe neighborhood for my sisters and I. But unfortunately, there were also long periods when we couldn't even afford to own a car. Now, I don't know about you, but do you know how difficult it is to date in Southern California as a teenager without a car? <laughs> it was hard. Let's just say I became obsessed with the importance of reliable public transportation. In all seriousness, being poor and in the suburbs without good transportation impacts routine chores and makes daily life difficult. It limited my family's ability to buy healthy, affordable food and severely impacted my mother's ability to get to and from work and how many hours she could spend with us each day. I did not know it at the time. My family was the first, part of, was the first wave of the suburban poor. What I experienced as a young person is what, I, what today I study in terms of spatial inequality along the lines of race, ethnicity, and class. Luckily for me, my mother challenged my sisters and I to focus on education, but also to try and fight for those whose voices are often not heard or given the same weight as others. These early life experiences opened my eyes up to structural and racial inequality. It helped me to see the intersectionality of poverty, education, health, housing, racial justice, and even gender inequality. So re returning back to the title of my talk today, Separate but Unequal, Can You Achieve Social Equity Through City Planning? My answer is yes. But it is not easy work and requires a real commitment from members of society. Achieving social equity through city planning requires building a collective movement in some key areas. Today I'm going to speak about four key areas, but they are by no means exhaustive in creating a socially just society. The areas I'm going to focus on are the following. Metropolitan growth and urbanization, health and the environment, poverty and inequality, citizen participation and community organizing. Let me now go into each of these in greater detail. Growth and urbanization. As you heard earlier, nearly 54% of the world's population lives in urban areas. And by 2050, the proportion is expected to increase to 66%. Close to 90% of this increase will be concentrated in Asia and Africa. This growth in urban areas presents challenges and opportunities to grow in more equitable and environmentally friendly way. Let's begin with some challenges that exist here in the United States. The current growth of many metropolitan areas has resulted in regions that are fragmented along the lines of political jurisdictions, school districts, and special districts. These disparate jurisdictions often do not collaborate with each other when it comes to maintaining or developing physical infrastructure, providing services, or planning in a coordinated way. For example, in this country, there are jurisdictions that are prioritizing investment in public transportation, 
and others next door that are investing in their roads and highway systems. Or take housing, for example. Housing is something where many Americans and other people around the world are struggling just to afford and maintain. Some jurisdictions are advocating for more affordable housing, inclusive housing, and others, are, uh, and others have no interest in constructing any housing at all, let alone affordable housing. This type of uncoordinated planning can result in a lack of an adequate supply of affordable housing being built, which can lead to higher housing prices in major metropolitan regions across the US. Media story after media story has focused on the increase in gentrification, neighborhood change, and displacement of middle and working class populations, as well as vulnerable populations. People who are priced out of their urban neighborhoods are often moving to the outer suburbs of the central city, which results in increased miles traveled, increased commute times to work, and can even result in negative health consequences for individuals. In a place like the United States, this jurisdictional competition for investments has major consequences for cities' tax base and can create a situation where jurisdictions compete with each other for firms, real estate investment, commercial retail, and even new sports stadiums. In addition, the current growth of the urban areas can also have impacts on suburban sprawl, increase in traffic congestion and greenhouse gas emissions, contribute to air pollution, and our de dependency on fossil fuels. In the US, traffic congestion accounts for more than $300 billion annually. This includes wasted fuel, lost productivity, and transporting goods. There are huge challenges in this country and globally with a shift towards metropolitan growth and increased urbanization. But there are also many opportunities. Just last week, I was invited to the United Nations for a workshop with the Secretariat General's team and other leaders. The goal of the workshop was to advance the cities and local climate action component of the Secretariat General's upcoming climate summit to be hosted at, by the UN in New York in September 2019. Given the current situation with regards to climate change, many at the meeting believe that we can begin to mitigate the effects of climate change by investing in a number of areas. Renewable energy, and focusing on how industry operates and produces goods. The other two areas we discussed deal explicitly with cities transforming our local land use patterns at the local level, focusing on the growth of cities and regions, especially the need to invest in urban infrastructure. I mention this because I think it is important that we collectively recognize that even something as big and daunting as climate change requires action at the local level. To make progress in this area, we have to focus on local actors, elected officials, government institutions, nonprofit leaders, the private sector, community leaders, and everyday citizens. And to do this, we need better coordination and collaboration across sectors focused on social equity, jobs and economic development, health, and the environment. Rather than saying what you don't want in your backyard, we need to be discussing what our vision is for our neighborhoods, our cities, and our metropolitan areas. Another area related to metropolitan growth and urbanization is health in the environment. If we are to build a movement around social equity through city planning, we have to make more progress in the areas of health in the environment. When researchers think about neighborhoods that are healthy, or about creating healthy neighborhoods, we seek to better under understand the social determinants of health. We look at the upstream factors that, that influence population health, such as government policies around important issues like housing, economic policy, transportation, 
or even education. We look at the operations of corporations and businesses and the level at which they are good stewards and leaders in their day-to-day -day practices. At the more immediate or downstream level, we look at the social determinants of health at the city and neighborhood level. We examine factors such as the level of racial or economic residential segregation, land use development patterns, the quality of housing stock, transportation networks, and racial and ethnic discrimination. We know that social inequities also matter a great deal in influencing one's health. So we seek to understand how class, race and ethnicity, gender, immigration status, and sexual orientation all can influence one's health. So what can urban planners do? In cities around the world, they are collaborating with health practitioners and others and working to adopt a health in all policies approach to local governance. Health in all policies is generally defined as a collaborative approach to improving the health of all people by incorporating health considerations into decision making across sectors and policy areas. According to the Public Health Institute's Health in All Policies, a Guide for State and Local Governments, health in all policies approaches includes five key elements. Promoting health and equity, supporting intersectoral collaboration, creating, crea creating co-benefits for multiple partners, engaging stakeholders, and creating structural or process change. At the local level, a city can adopt a health in all policies ordinance and strategy that ensures the city evaluates and prioritizes city services and promotes health e equity. They can achieve this in part through their general plan, possibly including a community health and wellness element. A city can look at the way its services do or do not promote health equity. From a global context, city leaders along with urban planners are advocating for more inclusive urban development and investment. Some of these leaders have adopted the United Nations Sustainable Development Goals, and others are simply advocating for more equitable development policies, systems-based approaches, and investments that result in, in the betterment of neighborhoods, resulting in higher quality of life and improved health for all residents. A third area in which we need to build a movement to achieve social equity through city planning is around poverty and inequality. The data on income inequality is sobering. It is estimated that the richest 1% of the world's population now owns 50% of its total wealth. Despite living in one of the wealthiest countries in the world, income inequality has reached historic proportions. The United States has the highest level of income inequality among advanced economies, according to, to the OECD. According to a recent study, median real wages grew by 0.2% over the past year. Wages for blacks declined in most wage brackets, while women with graduate degrees made less money than men with only college degrees. This income inequality is further heightened by the bifurcation of the labor market. On the one end, you have highly skilled, highly paid workers. On the other end, you have workers who are part of the service sector economy. In the middle, you have the hallowing out of the middle class, in many cities, the loss of the middle class, middle skill, or middle wage jobs has been devastating for communities. To live in neighborhoods what we would define as decent in cities today, two good salaries are typically needed for a family to reach even the self-sufficiency wage for living in the city. My work allows me to talk to local residents in cities throughout this country. From places such as Los Angeles, Detroit, Indianapolis, and Louisville. They have told me how hard it is to make a living in this economy, 
Countless people are relying on two or three jobs just to survive. What people need in today's economy is support. Urban planners have been trying to advance the conditions, of, advance the conditions that encourage good quality jobs by focusing their economic development strategies around e economic development opportunities. Some strategies focus on partnering with anchor institutions such as universities, medical facilities, research and innovation incubators, which are capable of creating better quality jobs and upward mobility. One of the best examples of this effort is in Boston, Massachusetts. Several years ago, local residents, community organizations, labor, educational institutions, and others partnered with medical and academic institutions in Boston's Longwood Medical and Academic Area. This is where Harvard Medical School, School of Public Health, and many of Harvard's teaching hospitals are located. Residents living nearby the medical and academic area were concerned about the increased development in the neighborhood. They were worried that growth within the area would lead to gentrification and displacement. Residents worked with leaders within the Longwood Medical and Academic Area and the city of Boston to develop community benefits for residents that were tied to development outcomes. Through a multi-sector par partnership among the government, the private sector, and nonprofit sectors, workforce development programs were established that targeted Boston's residents, many of whom were women, immigrants, and the economically disadvantaged. These workforce development programs have tried to develop good-paying entry-level jobs for residents that lead to careers with upper mobility, especially in the healthcare and technology fields. In addition, investments were made uh, by Longwood Medical and Academic Area Institutions into educational and community programs and into the local high schools. Cities can offer incredible opportunity and can be instrumental in creating economic opportunities for immigrants, people of color, the LGBTQ community, and all other groups have been marginalized in society. From the early arrivals of immigrants from such faraway places in Asia, Africa, Europe, Central and South America, and the Middle East, immigrants were able to create ethnic enclaves, some out of choice, others because of limited opportunities. These cities have provided a way for them to purchase a home, start a business, or land their first job. You all know that firsthand here in Cleveland. But this, this means that planners, we have to advance inclusive policies that invite diversity. I often think of my late grandfather who grew up in the Jim Crow South in Mississippi. He joined the military as a young man to get away from the injustices, terror, and hate. While he was in the military, he traveled the world and eventually settled in Los Angeles, California, where with a third grade education, he was able to get a good paying job with the city of Los Angeles. Eventually, he was able to purchase a modest home in Inglewood and start a small maintenance business. More importantly, my grandfather settled into a city where the mayor was the first black mayor of a major city and where some of his coworkers came from diverse places such as Armenia, Israel, China, and even the, deep, in even the deepest parts of Louisiana and Florida, all of them in search of economic opportunity. In addition to economic opportunity, cities can be milieus of innovation and creativity. Cities tend to attract people from all over the world who share different perspectives and experiences. This great diversity can lead to new discoveries and solutions. Just think about what I said earlier about the complex challenges we face as a society with climate change or environmental degradation. These challenges cannot and will not be solved simply by relying on a few specific disciplines or from a group of technocrats or political elites. True creativity and innovation comes from engaging with people from multiple perspectives to come up with the best possible solutions. For example, 
When I was a professor at Berkeley, a visiting scholar of mine, Dr. Max Nathan, was studying the impact of cultural diversity on innovation. Dr. Nathan, who is now at the London School of Economics, has shown that cultural diversity has a positive impact on innovation, entrepreneurship, and sales for London businesses. He and his colleagues conducted a study that investigated links among cultural diversity, innovation, entrepreneurship, and sales strategies for more than 7,600 London businesses. They found a small but significant diversity bonus for all types of London firms. First, companies with diverse management are more likely to introduce new product innovations than those with homogenous top teams. Second, diversity is particularly important for reaching international markets and serving London's cosmopolitan population. Third, migrant status has positive links to entrepreneurship. Overall, the results provide some support for claims that diversity is an economic asset as well as a social benefit. To address poverty and inequality, we have to do more than think of strategies to advance economic, in, uh, e uh, economic development and economic opportunity. We must also recognize the role that our criminal justice plays in persistent inequality. We know that many young men of color, and increasingly women, are part of our criminal justice system. Many are in prison for nonviolent drug-related crimes. According to the Sentencing Project, one out of eight black males are in prison or jail on any given day. Nearly 60% of our prisons are black and Latinx. This is what Michelle Alexander has referred to as the new Jim Crow. Once these men and women get charged with a felony, it becomes difficult to land a good paying job, attend college, or find quality housing. They're not integrated into our workforce and into society in a way that helps them to succeed. In fact, all too often, the stark reality for young men of color residing in the city is that they are stopped and harassed by police and face a tremendous amount of discrimination. I have spoken to young men of color in Washington, D.C., Boston, New York City, and San Francisco. They have told me the same stories about how, as their neighborhoods begin to change, the police and newly arrived residents harass them. We have also collectively witnessed the frequency with which young men and women of color are shot to death by the police. We know that the narrative in our society since slavery has been that black people and other men of color are dangerous and must be contained and controlled. That their lives are not as valuable or important. Basically, they do not matter and their lives are disposable. Planning cannot ignore this injustice. Planners need to help create more just cities that will act to protect people of color and the most vulnerable, especially the young and provide them with the opportunity to grow up in environments that are supportive and nurturing. Environments that will enable them to get a quality education, be entrepreneurs if they want to be, obtain a good paying job, basically environments that will cultivate their talents to enable them to live healthy lives and contribute to their communities. Finally, none of, this, of, what, I've, none of what I've discussed is even possible without robust citizen participation and community organizing. We must strengthen the relationship between urban planning and democracy. When I wrote my book, The Urban Struggle for Economic, Environmental, and Social Justice, I did not want to get into the academic argument about whether gentrification and displacement is real, or who the gentrifiers are, or whether gentrification and neighborhood change can be good for long-term residents. I wanted to focus on how people were dealing with, the with, how people were dealing with neighborhood change. I wanted to hear their voices, lift up their narratives, in everyday lived experiences. What does neighborhood change mean for their lives, for their communities? Basically, I wanted to humanize the event of neighborhood change and show that individuals, show that individuals are 
that are impacted by this event are more than just a data point in an academic regression analysis. As many of you know, this is hard work and can be painful too. I remember interviewing an elderly woman in Washington, D.C. that had stayed in her community and fought to make it better most of her life. She lived through the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King, disinvestment out of the city, the crack cocaine epidemic, and startling high homicide rates, only to no longer be able to afford to live in her neighborhood. I heard the pain of residents in Brooklyn, New York, who felt that all the new development coming into the neighborhood was nice, but ultimately was not planned for them and how they were becoming outsiders in their own communities. And I will never forget how residents in the Mission District in San Francisco told me that they did not want to become a museum for the rest of the city, but instead are fighting to preserve their culture, their history, and document their contribution to the city. In essence, what I heard from so many residents in different cities is that they feel undervalued and disrespected because they are not part of the planning and development process. They feel that their voice is ignored and their, opinion, or, and their opinions are not as important as others. Many, many also spoke of the diminishment of cultural institutions, organizations, and their lack of political and economic power. All of this has only strengthened my belief, in, belief that community capacity building is critical for achieving social equity through the city planning process. All of my work in these narratives have also led me to conclude that there needs, there needs to be deep coalition building across multi-sectors along racial, ethnic, and class lines. These type of coalitions have the ability to bring about positive social change, strengthen social cohesion, and lead to racial dialogue and healing. Moreover, what is needed at the local and metropolitan levels are leaders who are able to work with residents elected officials, nonprofit, for-profit organizations to articulate and develop an equitable justice framework that is focused on what people are for and not what they are against. Stakeholders need to work hard to articulate a vision of what they want and to avoid simply being reactionary. Ultimately, I have learned from my work that telling a narrative and organizing residents matters to bring about social, economic, and environmental change. Stakeholders must build from the base up. They must build broad-based coalitions across multi-sectors and hold local governments accountable, transparent, and responsible for their actions. Planners must think globally, but act locally. Recognize that cities play important roles in addressing global problems. Planners must resp respond to communities' needs and concerns using an equitable uh, and environmental and justice uh, framework. For example, advocating for more efficient transit, affordable housing, good quality jobs, educational and economic opportunity, access to healthy foods, and racial equality. Finally, representatives across various stakeholder groups must be willing to compromise and to collaborate within reason to achieve goals. Let me end by saying this. As individuals, we must always stand up for justice and fight bigotry, misogyny, sexism, and hate. We must stand up for human and civil rights for all people and be willing to hold ourselves accountable for our actions. Those of us with economic, social, and political power cannot stand by and allow our nation and our cities to exclude and displace people simply because they are working class, economically disadvantaged, vulnerable, or do work that is viewed as less important or less valuable. There are so many people working two and three jobs just to survive. They are the backbone of our cities and they must have a right to the city and be a part of its future. Thank you.
Thank you, Malo. I'm Dan Malthrop, CEO of the City Club, and today we are enjoying a forum with Dr. Malo A. Hudson, Associate Professor of Urban Planning and the Founder and Director of the Urban Community and Health Equity Lab at the Graduate School of Architecture, Planning, and Preservation at Columbia University. We're about to begin the Q&A with the audience, with all of you. We welcome questions from everyone, City Club members, guests, students, and those of you joining us via our live stream. If you'd like to tweet a question, please tweet it at the City Club, and our staff will work it into the program. Holding our microphones today are Content Coordinator Bliss Davis and Youth Forum Council Chair Tiolo Orasanya. May we have our first question, please? Good afternoon. Um, that was a very, very meaty presentation. Let me try to focus on one issue, and that's uh, public transportation and specifically getting people to their jobs. Uh, when I read about issues regarding transportation, it seems to be going to the social equity piece here, more, more towards uh, helping middle class and upper class people, you know, providing bike trails and also rapid transit, which is supposed to, uh, light rail transit, which is supposed to help development. What do you see as the problem of getting people to their jobs and how would you like to see that solved through public transportation? Well, that's, that's a big question, but I would say the first thing is, I think of myself as a father with two young children. Getting there on time and it's efficient and affordable, right? Uh, a lot of our transit systems struggle with that. But if you want to get people out of cars, you need multiple modes of transportation. That includes the bike lanes, that includes the streetcars. I mean, every city's different. But multiple modes of transportation that really link people across a region to where those job nodes are. Um, oftentimes, if you were to overlay much of where our transit backbone is and overlay poverty, inequality, all those things, you will see that certain neighborhoods are left out of this equation. And I think what you're getting at is saying, how uh, do you have a, a transit strategy that actually incorporates the many people into the system to keep it going, right? The taxpayers, people are going to ride it, whether it be for recreational purposes, going into school, uh, that's safe and reliable. And I, I would say that the, the challenge in many places is that you're not able to get a, a broad swath of the population that supports public transit, right? Perfect example in the Bay Area, in, in San Francisco, they are trying to improve the Bay Area Rapid Transit. It has not had a lot of investments like it's needed to, like many transportation agencies. And uh, people are taking Uber, Lyft, they're in the private buses. So essentially people have now opted out to, to a private sector component, not the public sector. Well, what happens to a transit system when the everyday riders don't ride it anymore, right? It, starts, it hurts ridership, hurts the tax base, and that sort of thing. So um, I would say for transit, you have to have these, these tough discussions about how do you prioritize, what do you prioritize first? But I, I would avoid getting into the conversation, it's, it's either or, it's this or that. I'd say it's all the above, and how do you try to make it work? Because you do need multiple modes of transportation. Hello, Dr. Hudson, how are Hi. you? I enjoyed your speech, it was Thank excellent. My name is Carol Malone, and my daughter is a student at Cleveland State's uh, Master's Urban Planning Program. I'd like to ask you, what advice do you have for students who are interested in urban planning, and particularly students of color? Oh, I love it. Uh, so, you know, you heard my story. I didn't set out to be a planner. That was not the, you know, I, I was watching LA Law and all those other things, doctors, much more glamorous. First thing is we need a television show. Then I'm kidding. That, that would be on the Insomnia channel, I'm sure, yes. Uh, the plans didn't go through. No, dun, 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 to next week. No. <laughs> okay, let me stop joking around here, yeah. We are at the City Club of Cleveland. So, no, I would say that uh, be committed to the real change that you want to see, right? I know that people say that all the time, but change comes about 
not really from the top. It's you know, priorities are driven from the top a lot of times. But real change that I've seen happens from the bottom. And a perfect example uh, in the wonderful introduction uh, for me today, you, we talked about me going to the White House. I was super excited, and it was a great honor. But you start to realize that there is this Washington conversation that happens that is disconnected from the rest of the world. So what was the lesson I learned? Of course, it was great meeting wonderful people and amazing people. I walked back to my community saying, it's the teacher. It's the person who pays their taxes. It's the person who looks after the elderly. It's the everyday Americans that keep this country going and make it great. That's what, that, and, 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 and to tell you something else, Washington is not innovative, right? And so innovation comes from communities, right? So I'm gonna lift up what's happening in Cleveland. I joke with my colleagues, I'm happy to be invited here. You're just inviting a wolf in here because I get to hear about all the wonderful things you're doing and make it sound like it was my, no, I, you know, you always say like this happened in Cleveland um, because the real ideas come from people. Innovation comes from the everyday people. Then Washington says, let's, lift, let's bring this here and we'll lift it up and then we'll make it sound like this, you know, and then we'll test it and do all this thing. So it's, it's about getting involved in your community early on for young people, uh, pay attention to what's happening. There's, there's a lot of great programs that try to incorporate young people into the planning process. Uh, there's the Y Plan, Youth Plan, Act Now. And one of the interesting things being involved with that is that you, you give young people uh, mapping skills, you give them a video recorder, or now they use a phone, you know, and they go out and start talking to elderly in the case of East Oakland, California. They didn't have a lot of pride coming from East Oakland, deep East Oakland especially. And as they start to talk to the elderly and, and the sort of the, the wise people in the community, tell me your history. Well, this used to be here, that used to be there. Amazing. Then they mapped where everyone lived. They mapped which liquor stores were selling cigarettes to underage people. I mean, they, they know it all. So get them involved early on uh, for them to get involved in their own communities. Oftentimes, what's the mechanism to get young people involved in the planning process? Well, how do we reach out to, I'm not trying to put Freddie on the spot. I'm just, this, is a, this is a rhetorical question. Not, not, but how do you engage young people, right? That's what's important, because they are the future. We say that all the time. But I focus most of my work on young people. Families and children is what my work is really all about. And it goes back to my childhood. So I'm trying to, it's therapeutic for me. I'm trying to figure out my life through my own work, yeah. Uh, good thing I'm not a planning director, right? So, um, yeah, but, but for the students out there, please contact me. I'm, I'm always recruiting. And I think that uh, I can think of nothing better than to change your own communities, to engage with residents, to think about how all of these things I talked about today, whether it be housing and the environment and economic development, how it all intersects with each other. And, and you know, one, one challenge I'll put out to young people, and I hope before I retire, uh, young people are able to design spaces that are truly multicultural and allow for real dialogue, that allow for people to get to know each other in a way that they wouldn't have crossed paths with each other before. Going back to the gentleman's question about transportation, I mean, that's, that's one of the things about transportation. I moved from the Bay Area to New York, and at least when I'm on the public transportation, I'm in, it's, it's the whole city, right? It's a, it's a, in the Bay Area, slowly starts to change private buses, Lyft and Uber, suddenly you can have that boutique lifestyle and never have to deal with the other, right? And so that's a problem. And I think at the end of the day, we, I've never been to a community, whether it be in the US or abroad, I do a lot of international work, I've never had a community say to me, I, I, don't, I don't want a safe neighborhood, I don't want quality schools, I don't want healthy food. There are so many people that, there are so many issues that we all agree on. Now we might disagree how to get there, but for, the, for the, the main issues in people's lives, it's there, right? Whether you're from North Olmstead, Shaker Heights, uh, Huff, 
people care about the, the basic things that matter a lot. Sorry to be on my soapbox, but you know, don't give it, don't give an academic a microphone. Dance like. He was like, I should have directed the earlier instructions to Malo. Yes. Good afternoon. The leading cause of death for an African American male between the ages of 18 to 24 is homicide. Yes. And you mentioned the African American young lady who lived in Washington D.C. Yes. that lived through the crack cocaine epidemic. Yesterday, I saw Speaker Ryan talk about the opiates and how much yes. millions of dollars they're going to spend on opiates. And all the representatives who show pictures of people who died for opiates are all white. Yes. How do we get them to understand that, that crack cocaine epidemic destroyed African-American neighborhoods and families and millions of our young men who are in jail or have that felony on their backs today is because they were thrown in jail during the crack epidemic. They weren't given hospital help. They weren't looked at this from a public health standpoint. They were looked at this from a crime element com component. How do we get this nation to understand that these young men deserve a second chance and they deserve an opportunity to go back into their neighborhoods and make their neighborhoods better, just like whites want to make their neighborhoods better through the opiate situation? So that's an excellent question. I've actually, uh, in, my, in my class I've lectured on this. It's telling a narrative. And it's telling a multi-racial uh, narrative. It's getting bro these broad-based coalitions to talk about how, hey, you're losing your child, or I lost my child, you lost yours. Let's talk about it. Right? So I was uh, recently in Israel and Palestine in talking to mothers who had both lost children in, in the war. Right? It's a different conversation. So if you're saying, well, that's interesting. There's no sympathy here. There was no sympathy in the 80s and 90s for many inner-city black families and people of color, and now all of a sudden there's this whole, all this money being uh, put aside for the opioid crisis, it's to make that connection, tell the narrative, look, this is the same. And more importantly, how is it impacting the United States of America? How is it impacting all of us, right? From an educational perspective, productivity, quality of life. I mean, you go up in the Northeast, up into some of these communities, or in California, I go out to the Central Valley, it's devastating communities. Black, white, Latinx, you name it. It's, so we have to have the narrative that says, yes, you need to understand the pain that we've gone through and how we don't feel valued and heard. But it's also then saying how of what you're struggling with today is what we were struggling with before and still are struggling with, right? It's still an issue for many communities. But it's an American issue, right? The, the drugs are a problem that are impacting all. The question is why? Right? We can get into, like, well, you were, you were hard on crime with us. You threw it. That's important, and we need to... That's why I talk about criminal justice. But at the end of the day, why are we not having a broader conversation that says, what is going on in America? What is happening in our communities? Why are young people turning to drugs? What is, like, what's happening, right? Something's happening. And if you go up to Maine and all these, it's devastating communities. And, 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 and even the central cities, it's devastating. So I wish I had a, you know, I wish I had a better answer, but I just try to tell a narrative. All, everywhere I go, I try to tell the narrative. I, I work with young people all the time. And let me tell you, California, a lot of identity politics, right? We're not even getting into like, it's just like across the board. And what I've learned to do is have a dialogue that, is, that cuts across a lot of hum, uh, human issues that we care about and try to talk to each other as humans and then work my way up to say, but look at this trajectory. Why are our prisons this way? Hmm, that's interesting. Why is this over here that, you know, 
But we're all suffering in some way, and people are suffering in different ways, and we have to have the empathy and compassion. But more importantly, we have to be solution-oriented, right? My frustration as an academic, and I don't, you know, I, I came into this because I wanted to solve a problem. I didn't want another child like me to deal with poverty and all the things I had to deal with, the trauma I had to go through. Be solution-oriented. I tell my students, be solution-oriented. That means you have to cross. If Republicans had all the great ideas, they'd be in office forever. If Democrats had all the ideas, they'd be. The fact of the matter is, there are good ideas from a lot of people. Some people don't even know about politics. They were just whatever. Good ideas. Uh, and we have to be able to then say, how do we move from this, you know, that's why I really respect the work that you do here, because it, it's, it's elevating the conversation, right, beyond the, the sound bites and saying, what this gentleman's question, what you just asked me is a fundamental one, the one about trans, and just say, how do we elevate that to solutions, to be solution-oriented? And so much of the time is, is debating, right? And what we need to say is, yes, I have we need to learn to have compassion and empathy and understanding and have real dialogue, but then at the end of the, once we have that, then say, what are the solutions? You're all done now. You're like, okay, too much academic speak. <laughs> He's still got the barrier in him. He's uh, like, you know. <laughs> yes. uh, thank you, Professor. My yeah. name is Linda Armstead. Uh, I'm a resident of Shaker Heights. I grew up in Shaker. Well, actually, uh, my mom and dad moved us from the projects uh, near 30th and Community College uh, to Shaker. My mom rented on and off. Um, and I'm going to try to get this uh, out yeah. to you. My concern is you mentioned, you, you, you referred to cities and townships referring to their housing stock. And I've read this in, in different city council meetings and whatnot. And I was like, it doesn't belong to you. It belongs to me. I'm paying for this oh. property. And I've noticed, uh, I have observed and got caught up in this swirl of what they call, I learned to find out. I had no idea what gentrification was, but I, there was a book I encountered called The City After Abandonment. Mm -hmm. And it gave me a really good, uh, a clear vision on what was occurring. Mm -hmm. And I've watched it for the last seven years and became quite entangled in that mechanism to the point to where um, I finally threw up my hands and had to call in some, some areas and, uh, and experts to kind of hold the wolves off. Mm -hmm. My neighborhood has been devastated to the point that I believe their housing stock as of right now uh, of uh, uh, demolished areas where there's plots, I think about 190. Mm -hmm. When I look at that, I was like, that's 190 of my neighbors oh. with the kids that used to play yeah. in the neighborhood. Yeah. And so my children asked me, Mom, why do you even bother to keep this house? I said, and this is where uh, my question is coming into, I said, because you may need a place to stay. Uh, we're doing a lot of development of um, ex uh, luxury um, structures yeah. in the city as of now. I am aware or have learned that there'll be, you know, eventually there's uh, an assessment uh, for tax purposes, taking an appraisal. Yeah. That means that the um, tax 
the tax rates are going to increase, which is going to affect the homeowners and which will also affect the renters. My daughter went out with a friend of her, hers, her, her mother. They can't afford where they're staying at their, their apartment. The, the costs have gone up already. And, she, and they looked around and she came home and she said, Mom, I got to stay here with you. I can't go out there. I can't afford that. And I said, it's just going to get worse. So what is, is uh, my concern is my thoughts are around a conversation that's going on not only in, within the country in different cities, but around the world of rent control. Uh, yeah. Thank you very much. Yeah. So, so thank you for your question. And I'm, I'm sorry that you're, you're experiencing that. That causes a lot of stress. I mean, I've heard story after story like this uh, in many communities. Uh, you know, so what are the solutions around the housing crisis? First and foremost is building more housing, right? That's just, we need to build more housing. Um, there are a lot of people who, once they are homeowners, and they live in that boutique community, and they have that great tax base, uh, let's look at Silicon Valley. Lots of jobs being created. How much housing? In Palo Alto, Menlo Park, Cupertino. Everyone's saying San Francisco needs to build their fair share of housing, but housing is regional, right? Whether you're in Cleveland, Ohio, and talking about the, the, the 12 county region, how people need housing. And we should be building more housing. We should be building the kind you see now. Downtown. We should, I, I went through Huff yesterday in the amazing housing stock. And when I'm referring to housing stock, I'm talking about the quality of the bones of the housing that's there, right? And people have been bulldozing these, whether it be West Oakland, uh, Baltimore. I mean, it's amazing to see, uh, in a bad way, amazing, to see all of this wonderful housing just being uh, bulldozed. Uh, there's old pictures of Oakland with the Sherman tank. Sherman tanks came in and just bulldozed houses in the black community. Uh, so build more housing. Think about building inclusive housing, right? We need to do not just housing, but housing for whom? Right now, when you look at the issue around housing, where's the middle class in that discussion? And I care a lot about the poor, a lot of my work, but there is some housing, there's some programs, but I'm finding the middle class in this country is being hammered and don't have children in school. I'm glad my children are four and six, they have some time, but um, you, own, you have a mortgage, children in school, paying for transportation and your health bills and all, it, how are people, that's what I'm concerned, how do people survive? And so I would say that we need to build more, we need to think and look at other mechanisms, yes, there's, there's rent control, but that, uh, you know, honestly, it's one of those things, once you're in it, it's great for you. But what about the new person coming along? What about the young people coming along? How do they start their lives? So I would say, I know you have your issues here in Cleveland, and I'm, I'm, I've only been here a day and a half, so I, I'm not, a, I'm not uh, my mom raised me better to think I could even offer any solutions, but I will say, here, observation I have, you have the infrastructure here. I know you're critical of it because you see the warts that I don't see, but you have the infrastructure, you have the cultural institutions, you have some of the things that, the waterfront, you have a lot of assets that my first trip to Cleveland, I'm like, this is an amazing place. You can get out in front of a lot of these things. You can have that discussion about what does the future of the Cleveland metropolitan area look like, right? Given all that's happened in the world, you're actually in a great place. Many people are struggling, living in you know, 150 square foot apartments to survive. And I'm, I'm, when I go back to New York, I'm telling all my students who are complaining, go to Cleveland. Go, and I mean, that, I mean that in a real way. Go to Cleveland. Get involved. Make it have an impact. If you're black and want to do planning, go to Huff. They need it. They can get involved, right? And I say that in a real way because it's not the big cities that are going to make the big difference in the world. Yes, they're, they're held up as symbols. But it's the everyday cities like Cleveland where people work 
And they work real jobs. Not to say we don't in New York, but there's a lot of funny money in New York. <laughs> I have friends that become millionaires. So like, but well, what did you do? You were like, what, what? They don't even know what they did. They're just like, I don't know. Like, click the button, money went this way, now I got a bonus. Yes. <laughs> right? I mean, I say that because, like, you need to see people who build stuff with their hands. I see on the table full of young people, learn to build stuff, learn to grow food, learn to do things in your community. That's going to have an impact. So I say all of this because you actually can get out in front of these issues. You actually can say, you know what, there, how many, like there's no cliffhanger to these gentrification stories. We know what happens. People move back, it's not like, oh, there's a cliffhanger. You know what happens, right? You know what happens. Whenever there's investment in infrastructure, not investment in people, you're about to be gone. I've seen it city after city, not just in the US, London, East London, Paris, even though Europe's long kicked out the poor for you know, many of their South America, I do a lot of work, see in Santiago, Bogota, you name it. It's a global phenomenon. And the question is then, how do we create these equitable cities that are centered around health and quality of life? Right? Quality of life. And so you have the opportunity, I had a great conversation with Freddie last night, great opportunity to do a lot here. Uh, to get out in front, you have leaders that are here. You, you know, the, the universities and the institutions that are here are phenomenal. So, you know, I, I'm, I'm from the outside and I'm just saying that I see you have opportunity. Where I go to other places, the train has left the station and it's not coming back. And it's hard to just look people in the eye. Uh, perfect example, I was in Oakland and I went to a community meeting to talk about some of the development and a, and a man followed me out, chased me, and he's like, help me. My family and I have lived here for 40 years, you know, this, that, help me. And he's like, what's the solution? You're a professor, you do this, what's this? And I was like, oh man, because professors, we just, you know. Uh, and that was the hardest thing for me because you see someone who's agonizing, who a grown man in tears, a grown man, and practically grabbed me to talk, chase me down. And all I could say was like, there's, there's not a lot you can do. I mean, you, you, it takes a long time. To, there's, lot, there's things you can do, but the kind of immediate help he needs is just not there, so. Yes. Yeah, Dan. Thank you. Thank you. You know, I was I was thinking as I was listening to Dr. Hudson that this is um, this was like a, a summary of every awesome city club program of the last seven years, pretty much. And I think a lot of us sort of felt that. And it's also a clarion call and a reminder that. Um, the past isn't necessarily prologue, and we can make a more equitable future in the city, and we have a, a real opportunity here. So today at the City Club, I'm not supposed to editorialize, I apologize. Thank you for, thank you. Um, today at the City Club, we've been enjoying a forum with Dr. Malloway Hudson, Associate Professor of Urban Planning and Founder and Director of the Urban Community and Health Equity Lab at the Graduate School of Architecture, Planning and Preservation at Columbia University. Dr. Hudson appears as part of the American Planning Association Cleveland's We Plan CLE initiative, and our hospitality partner today is the Metropolitan at the Nine Hotel. We appreciate your support and partnership all. We welcome guests at tables hosted by City Architecture, Cleveland City Planning Commission, Cleveland Neighborhood Progress, and Ohio City Incorporated. Additionally, we welcome students from Flow Homeschool Co-op and MC Squared STEM High School. Student participation in City Club forums is provided by many foundations, including the William M. Weiss Foundation. We thank all of you for being here today. That brings us to the end of our program today. Thank you, Dr. Hudson. Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Our forum is adjourned.
For information on upcoming speakers or for podcasts of the City Club, go to cityclub.org. Production and distribution of City Club forums on IdeaStream are made possible by the generous support of PNC and the Raskin Family Fund, with additional funding from Robert Conrad, Cleveland State University, the Chautauqua Institution, the Cleveland Clinic, and the United Black Fund of Greater Cleveland Incorporated.